morning. Glad to be here today. I'm glad to be here today. Looking forward to digging into God's word and lifting up his name and praise. Plus, it's been so good, even in our first two services, see all the children being dedicated to the Lord. They add so much life to our stage, and it's exciting. I said earlier that it's fun for me. When you've been at a place for a long period of time, beginning my 25th year, some of the parents were kids, and now they have kids. It's kind of fun to watch the journey, and then them loving the Lord, and now their children loving the Lord, too. As we walk through this book of 1 Peter, it's a great book. It reminds us of who we are in Christ, and we are blessed beyond measure. And today, as we dig into this chapter 2, we're going to see that, that we are chosen by God, and that really should mean something to us, that the God of the universe selected us to be on his team. That should have changed the way you got up this morning, those of us who know Jesus. That should have put a bounce in your step and caused you to have a big grin on your face this morning when you rolled out of bed because you're on Team Jesus and he saw fit to choose you. We've all tried out for things in our lives. All of us probably have stories where we, where we went and we tried out. They had tryouts. And, and I've had numerous times in my life where I had to try out for something, where I had to perform or earn my way to get on the team. I can recall as a, a freshman in, in high school, I went to inner city school in Hagerstown, Maryland, and uh, we had a lot of, of people that went to the school, and I wanted to play basketball there, so we had a freshman team, and so they brought all the freshmen that wanted to play basketball, and there were 50 guys vying for 12 spots. They had 38 cuts that they were making for, for freshman basketball. And I enjoyed basketball and had played. And so I knew I needed to perform. I, need, I knew I needed to, to work extra hard. I knew I needed to get this coach's attention to see that I had what it would take. And I remember the first couple of nights in practice, I ran so hard during the suicides that I had to run to the water fountain and throw up between them. I gave everything I had. I laid it all on the court. And by God's grace, made that team... And ended up starting as a point guard. I was 4'11 and a half and weighed 95 pounds as a freshman in high school. I was a mighty force, let me tell you. <laughs> then I remember in college, when I went to Grace College uh, many years ago in 1986, I wanted to play basketball there. And I was coming in from Maryland. It was the last um, um, week or so decision to go to college. God had moved in my heart to pursue that path. And when I got there, I realized that that they were having tryouts and they were going to open it up and most of the guys were on scholarships. So I decided that I would try out for the college basketball team. And so I went out and did the same thing I tried in. I gave my best, performed, tried to go extra, do the extra things that the coach was looking for. And the coach told us, Coach Kessler at the time, that he would put a list on the gym door and then you could go and look at this list. And if your name was on the list, then you made the team. And I remember waking up that morning, it was before chapel, and I was anxious, I was nervous, and I didn't want anyone else to go with me to walk to see that list, to see if I had made the Grace College team. And I walked my way over to the, the old gymnasium that's now torn down on Grace Campus, and as I walked to this gymnasium, I could see the, the eight and a half, eleven sheet that was on the door, but I was reserved and hesitant. I was trying to figure out how I would respond if my name wasn't there or was there. And I remember walking over, finally, okay, I'm just going to see. And I looked and I peeked and went through, boom, 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 Jim Brown. It was like inside, I was jumping up inside and outside. I was like, yeah, cool. It was just, 
But I remember thinking through that, like, it was important. I had to earn my way. Yet Peter is looking at this group of believers, this scattered group, and he's looking at us today. And he says, there is nothing that you need to perform or earn or do to become a child of God. God chooses us before the foundation of the world. Now think about that for a second. We could never earn our salvation. There is nothing that we could ever do that could ever get us to holy God because of our sin. And it's because of the work of Jesus on the cross that he made a sacrifice for us to get to God. And if we freely accept that gift, we don't have to earn our salvation and we don't have to keep earning it to keep it. Once we're on his team, Peter is saying there is a life-changing action that should come out of that. Grab your Bibles and I'll show you and turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. If you need a Bible, hold your hand up. Our ushers will put one in your hand. But turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. We're going to read verses 1 to 10. Would you stand with me as we read it today? You are chosen is what Peter is trying to tell us today. So as a result of that, what does that mean? Let's read it together. Verses 1 to 10 of chapter 2. Ready? Read. Therefore, rid yourself of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation. Now that you have tasted the Lord is good. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into spiritual house to be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You may have a seat. Because of all this, Peter is saying, we are able to live differently when we are on God's team. We saw last week that what, what that means, that we no longer fit into the old packages, nor should we fit into the old package. Once air is put in the mattress and the air is even let out of it, that the mattress, air mattress never fits back into the package because we shouldn't return to the old, we should return to the new. And this new creation lives differently. And we're an integral part of living out our faith for Jesus Christ. And so I, you think about that for a second. When you've made a team or been part of a team, one of the things they give you, they give you new shoes, they give you a jersey, they give you practice uniforms. And all those things are really, really, really nice because you're part of the team. But when you become a member of God's family, he not only reclothes you, but he literally does this. He takes you. And he puts God inside of you. Like, that's awesome, by the way. Think about that for a second. When we become a child of God, when you weren't a child of God, before you trusted in Jesus, just picture yourself seated here today. 
There was a time before Christ, B.C. And after you've come to Christ, you are completely different. Because now, before, God didn't live in you. But right now, God lives in you. That should change the way we live. Everywhere we go, God is in us. We have a distinct, and I would say an unfair advantage because of that. We've got to remind ourselves of this stuff. Because if we forget, then we get up, oh, another day, it's going to be hard, it's going to be difficult. Wake up in the morning and say, God lives in me! Woo! Like, that should change your life! I can tell you're really excited about that, by the way. <laughs> and so because of that, Peter's looking at this group of believers and saying, because God lives in you, and because it's different, then you should do this. And look what he says. Therefore... Rid yourselves of all malice, of all deceit, of all hypocrisy, of envy, and slander of every kind. Rid has the idea of burning off something. It has the idea of stripping off yourselves of that. It means to chuck away this old style, these old beliefs, this old practices. It means to exterminate. It means to kill. And there is nothing about those words that encourages us to hold on to our old ways. So he's looking at this group of believers and he's saying, get rid of malice. Get rid of envy. You don't need it anymore. If you have an identity crisis, then just look to Jesus because you are his child. And what's it mean to get rid of malice? Malice is a desire to hurt someone with words or deeds. One translation said, it's a smoldering resentment that causes you to lash out at others. Peter's saying, get rid of that. You don't need to push anyone down anymore to put yourself up. You're already elevated because Jesus lives in you. Your identity is in Christ now. And then he says, get rid of deceit, which means to bait the hook. You play a trick on someone to get your way. It's a clever form of deliberate dishonesty. You no longer have to deceive your way through life. You can just stand in the, on the promises of God and your identity in Christ. And he says, get rid of all hypocrisy. It's the practice of putting on a mask and a part and coming out and playing this part and saying, this is who I am, and then afterwards playing the part that you are. It's walking through life and pretending to be someone that you're really not with hopes that I'll be accepted and they'll like me and I'll be like them. And Peter's saying, you don't need to act like the world. You're a child of God. Get rid of hypocrisy. And then he says, get rid of all envy. Envy is jealousy at the success of others or happiness at another's misfortune. An envious person will be, well, I wish I had what they had, but then when they fall or they get something taken from them, it's like, yeah, I'll never show that, but you see what happened to them. <laughs> you see what happened to the Browns. <laughs> That's envy. One person said it, it's the last sin Christians will confess to because it's so ugly. Like, would you ever confess? Let's have confession time. I envy that person. I envy what they have. No, it's a secret kind of sin that you carry because if you ever admit that you're envious, then it shows you that you're insecure and you dare not tell anybody that you're insecure. And Peter's saying, 
Get rid of that. Exterminate it. Kill it. Why? Because now you have God in you. You don't need what they have. You have enough in Christ. And then he says, get rid of all slander. Slander means to speak down about someone, to gossip, to backbite. It has the idea of spreading rumors, unkind words. It's an unfinished sentence. Have you ever had someone do that? They bring up a name and they'll say, hey, have you heard about Jim? Well, he was out. Oh, I better not tell you. It's like, oh, dot, 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 dot. It's unfinished sentences that are out there. That's what slander, and slander is putting someone down to make yourself look good. And Peter's saying, stop it, get rid of it. There's no need for it anymore. Why? Because we have inherited more than we deserve in this relationship with Jesus. And when you begin to realize what you have in Jesus, you don't feel the need to fit in or go back to your old ways. And there's no need to. No one or nothing compares to Jesus. Do you agree with that? No one or nothing compares. And the reason you did it before is because you had an identity crisis. But now you're a child of the king. And if you're in school and someone's trying to tear you down, listen, just stand firmly and boldly in your faith because I tell you, they are jealous of what you had. The only reason someone's coming after you and your faith because they see something in you that they want and you're standing up for it. And when you stand up for Jesus, you will be persecuted. But stand up and say, I got Jesus. And don't let your peers tear you down and so he's looking at these scattered christians and then he says this in verse two like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation and now that you have tasted that the lord is good so he's looking he says crave die for thirst for live for jesus And don't live like a child, but grow up. He's looking at these scattered Christians. He says, it's time for you to grow up. Quit hiding. Quit wanting to go back. He's saying you need to get rid of your baby stage. We call it sanctification. It's the journey that we're in. We come to Christ. God lives in us. And then we try to become more like Christ. And by the way, he's the one that causes us to grow. We're obedient. And so the sanctification journey takes place. And Peter's saying, grow up. Look more like Christ every day. Quit trying to go back to your old ways. And so there's this journey that's in front of us. And the point is, he says, don't act like a baby. And how does a baby act? Think about the stages of children. It's appropriate that today we had child dedication. Think back when your children were small. A lot of children, when they're small, are unable to handle their emotions. They're very unstable. And if they don't get what they want, what do they do? They begin to cry. And if they're really unstable, they, 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 they have tantrums. Have you ever seen a kid have a tantrum in the store when he wants something going through the checkout and mom or dad says no and he starts kicking his feet and throwing his arms and screaming? Have you ever seen an adult do that? He's saying, quit it. Quit acting like a child. I've seen it happen with adults, husbands and wives get mad at each other out in public, and they're screaming and yelling at each other, and I want to say, grow up! And Peter's looking at this group, and he's saying, grow up. 
another stage of a child is that they're very insecure and afraid. Your baby's crying. What do you do? You go to the crib and you pick them up. And often when you pick them up and you put them up close to you, it's 2 a.m. in the morning and it's your shift. Think about it. It's like, now you know you got to go. And so right before you go to bed, what do you do? Please, God, let them sleep through night. Please, God, let them sleep through night. Please, God, let them sleep through night. But then you hear this. And if you're like most, you tried to pretend that you're asleep. Maybe they'll get up. Please. But then your wife nudges you and says, it's your turn. So you go. And what happens when you pick that child up? They're insecure. And when you pick them up and hold them close, what happens? If you rock them and hold them, what do they begin? They They, they feel comforted and they fall asleep. And you're saying, now i got to make it from here back to the crib. And they got to fall back asleep. You've all been there. We've all been there. And so what do you do? You take child over because they're insecure, and you just pray, please, God, I've slept for five nights. And you put that child down, and what happens as soon as you let go? Ah! <laughs> and Peter's saying, grow up. Quit acting like a baby. The other stage of a child. What's another stage of a child where everything is mine? You heard Mine, that's mine, that's mine, mine. It's like the first word they know, mine. And he says, grow up, church. And you say, well, I'm not, I don't act like, oh, yeah, you do. You ever see people with road rage? They want their lane. That's my lane. Have you ever seen, have you ever been this person? You see a sign that says, one mile ahead, left lane ends. No explanation needed, huh? <laughs> and what happens as you all get in the line, and then there's this, you know, and they want to drive clean down to the front, don't they? And what happens to you? You want to act like a child, don't you? What do you want to do? <laughs> and you get so ticked, and you start to think about it. Why? Because that's my lane. I saw a video recently of road rage. It's kind of fun. Just type in Google. Watch road rage. And so this car was coming, and this guy would not let them over. He was so ticked that they had the audacity to pass everybody. And so it, it got over in this lane. It kind of nudged over, and the car was like here coming. And then the car went over on the shoulder road. It went over on the shoulder road. The car went down the median strip. It went down the median strip. The car tried to go clean across the median strip and go up and around. He went clean across the median strip. For what? Because it was his lane. It's mine. He says, quit acting like a child. You're a new creature in Christ. You've probably been guilty of that at one point or another. I saw a parking lot where two cars, one at one spot, and they both had been circling. Unbeknownst to the other, they could see that spot. Have you ever done that? Like, one more time around, one more time around. And then you, some, you look, and that car's backing out, and you go flying. I saw these two cars. They were coming this way, and a car was coming out, and this guy knew it was his spot because he had been around three times. And this guy knew it was his spot. And the car backed out this way and blocked, and this car pulled in, and this guy came around, backed up, and just rammed the car clean through the, the, the spot that was in front of him, pushed that car out, and sat in a spot like this and went... <laughs> Why? Because it's mine. Peter's saying, put those childish ways behind you. And children are very swayed to, to believe things. Gullible. He says, don't be gullible. 
if you want to know what the truth is and you want to know what the answer is, go here. Don't read over here and listen to someone else. Go back to the book. And he's telling them, throw away your childish behavior and crave God. John Newton had some really good stuff to say about the three stages of sanctification. In 1 John chapter 2 and verses 12 to 14, John talks about the three stages. We won't, you don't need to turn there, but you can look at it later. But he talks about the three stages of a Christian. He says we're little children when we come to Christ, and then we grow into young men. And then the final stage is spiritual fathers where we mentor. And then Newton had some really good things to kind of process what that looks like in our lives. He said, little children are sensitive to criticism and find admission of weakness difficult and embarrassing and is fairly insecure in how he or she is perceived. So when someone criticizes, you're embarrassed to admit that you have weaknesses because they or we do not know we are forgiven and loved or that they are forgiven and accepted. And they are still trying to prove their righteousness. And he says this, when you constantly struggle with God's forgiveness and love and grace, then you're still a little child in your growth process. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this in regards to this. This is just rich explanation. He said this, Let me put it into practical terms. I do not hesitate to put it like this. And then he said this. He said, if you are uncertain about the forgiveness of your sin, that in itself is a sin. Think about that for a second. He says, I want to be ruthless about this because there are many people who feel that an assurance of forgiveness of sin is presumption upon God. And they would rather give the impression that they are humble and modest. They say, oh, I would like to think my sins are forgiven. I do not feel good enough to say that. I am so unworthy. And Jones goes on to say, they give the impression that they have much lowliness and humility. The simple reply to that is this, and he says this. If you do not know that you have been forgiven, it is because you still rely upon yourself. Because you are not relying on the finished and complete work of the Son and the work He did on the cross. He says, do you right now know that your sins are forgiven? Do you? You saying? Are you absolutely sure that no matter what you've done, or what you're about to do, or what you do, that your sins cannot condemn you? Are you absolutely sure of that? He says, do you know that your sins are forgiven? Do you know that nothing can snatch you out of his hand? He said, you can, if you can't get past this stage, then you are still a child in your walk. So just answer those questions. Do you still struggle with his forgiveness and his grace? Or do you just say, hey, this is what the word of God says. I believe this. I trust in that. And I place my faith and belief in that system. And I'm moving on because God has already moved on. Then he says the young men stage. He said, it's like a teenager. You don't need as much attention as a teen. 
This stage is marked by lower feelings and growth in the knowledge of the truth. He says you pass through the stage when you overcome the temptation of Satan to conform to those around you and you're willing to be different. In other words, you don't let peer pressure determine how you live. And the teenage years are difficult. He says, you know you've moved from that stage from little children to young men or women to spiritual fathers when you no longer feel like you have to be like everyone else in the crowd. And if you still feel like you have to be like everyone else, then you truly haven't moved on in your sanctification journey. And then the final stage of this journey is called spiritual fathers. He says, you know him who is from the beginning. You trust him and don't let the hardships of your life derail your mission. You know how valuable he is, so you leverage your life for him. How do you know when you're doing that? It's when your carpet is pulled out from under your life financially, relationally. You have someone that you love that you've lost. You go bankrupt. Your business fails. A child runs away. Does your world come crashing down in that moment? Are you codependent on this person and they die and they're no longer there and your world is turned upside down? Newton would say, then you haven't reached that level of spiritual father because you're still codependent on someone else. And the only dependence you need is in Jesus Christ. And so Peter then says in verse 3, Now that you have tasted that the Lord is good, live differently. The truth is this, that we're prone to leave the God we love. (laughs) Why? Because we have an old sin nature in us. So Peter was looking at these scattered Christians, and he was noticing, like, they want to go back to Egypt, like the Israelites. They're tired of the struggle. They're tired of the hardship. They thought coming to Christ meant everything would be fine. And he's looking at this group that's getting ridiculed out in the school systems and, and in the workplace and not getting the jobs that they had. And they're saying, we want to go back. And he said, no, 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 no. You can't go back. Once you taste and see that the Lord is good, stay there. So how do you do that? This weekend, my wife and I were down at the lodge and we were able to speak and share with the young adults. It was a great, great time. I love that age group because the whole trajectory of a person's life is often changed in their 20s. And so we spent the weekend with them, and, and as we were sitting with them, we walked through what it means to reflect Christ and how to have the aroma of Jesus and how to smell like Jesus. And so we gave them these steps, and we talked about it. And I believe one of the ways we overcome this need to go back is by elevating Jesus. And so in Psalm chapter 22 in verse 3, it says that God inhabits our praise. You don't need to turn there, just write it down. And it says that the one enthroned in heaven is enthroned because of the praises of his people. And I described him. How do you keep your I'm saying, how do you keep your fire hot for Jesus? How do you keep your faith fresh? How do you how do you have the aroma of Christ? How do you remain attractive? And I said that people that remain attractive and keep their fires hot for Jesus are people who praise God daily, regularly. 
And that verse is a fascinating verse. It says that God inhabits the praises of his people. There's a translation that I really like. And this translation says this. When we praise God, we build a big chair for God to sit in. So think about this for a second. And I said, as you praise God and as I praise God, the chair in the room gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And what happens? He gets exalted. And what happens is because he's getting praised and he's bigger and he's taking up more spatial space in the room, everything else gets pushed out. Worry, doubt, insecurity, darkness, sin. And God fills the room that we're in, the space that we're in. And so as you and I continue to praise God, he inhabits it and he inhabits it and his chair gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And what happens then? Your identity is in Christ because all you see and all that you're consumed in that room with is Jesus. Can I get an amen over here? So people ask me, Pastor Jim, how can I walk through this hardship? I'd say, just praise God. How can I get through this difficult news? Just praise God. But why? Because God inhabits the praise of his people. And as we praise him, his chair gets bigger in the room. And there is nothing that can stay in that room but Jesus. That's how you grow. That's how you walk and understand who Jesus is. And then he goes through this discussion on the cornerstone. He talks about the living stones. He talks about the stone that makes people stumble, those who reject. And he's reminding us that Jesus is the cornerstone. And that you and I are living stones. And some people will stumble over Jesus and fall because they reject him. He's telling us that salvation in the cornerstone relieves disappointment, which brings precious value to the life of the believer. In other words, build your foundation on Jesus, not on anyone or anything else. And when you do, it's a game changer. Why? Because he never leaves you. He'll be there. When you walk through the valley of shadow of death, Jesus is with you. This week on Tuesday, Wednesday of this week, past week was my stepfather's 88th birthday. And so I wanted to drive home and to see my stepfather. It's about an eight-hour drive to Maryland. So Tuesday, I left the office Tuesday and drove through the night to go home to see my stepfather. I wanted just to take him out for lunch and wish him happy birthday. It's his 88th birthday. He's deserving of that. He's invested in me and given so much for me. So I drove through the night, stayed at my other sister's house, got up in the morning, and went to my other sister's home where my stepfather is staying, and we went out to Bob Evans together, and I took him out for lunch, and it was such a sweet time with my stepfather. I just told him how much I love him and how much I appreciate him. And as we were together, took him back to the home and said goodbye and prayed with him, and, and while I was home, wanted to visit my mom, who's in a home for patients with Alzheimer's. And so I knew it was about a 20-minute drive from there, and that was Wednesday. I was going to visit with my mom, and then I drove back Wednesday night, came back and did a funeral here at the church or at the funeral home for someone in our church this past Thursday morning. 
So I went to visit my mom, and I walk into the, the guest counter, and you walk in, and they say, who are you, who are you coming to visit? I'm, say, I'm, some, I'm here to see my mom. What's her name? I said, Beverly Anderson. And the, the receptionist says, oh, we love Beverly. I said, I do too. <laughs> and I said, my mom is probably out walking around somewhere. I'm sure she's not in a room. She's in room 229. My mom likes to walk, and she always did. She would take walks in the evening. You revert back to behavior that you had before. And so I said, she's probably in someone else's room. And you say, yeah, she ends up in a lot of different rooms sleeping in different beds. She doesn't know where she's at. So we walked in down the hallway, and the staff worker was with me. And so we just went down to every room, walked in. Mom's not there. <laughs> she's not there. She's not there. We went through 10 or 12 rooms, and finally we came to a room. And she was laying in the first bed, asleep on the bed, right on top. She was worn out from walking. And so I walked over to my mom, tapped her on the back, and I just whispered to her, I said, hey, mom, it's Jimmy. Just tapped her on the back, and she looked up. She didn't know it was me, but she said, hey, babe. That's her tender talk. I said, hey, mom, it's good to see you. I'm just here visiting you. And so I just sat on the bed and just patted her back and rubbed her hair. Just I said, hey, mom, you're beautiful. I love you. And so we had this great conversation. And then I pulled out my phone and just, she loved singing the old hymns. And I pulled out the phone and um, first we played Petula Clark's Downtown. Some of you might know that song. My mom loved the old music and she recognized a few words, but I know there's a song that she loves, and I wanted to talk to Jesus to her. So we pulled up the hymn called Until Then. It's one of her favorites. So I pulled it up and I said, hey, Mom, here's one of your favorite songs. And I started playing it, and I just started singing it, and it came to the chorus, and she began to sing the song. Until then, my heart will go on singing. Until the day you call me home. And as we sat there, I just explained to her, I said, Mom, you're going to go to heaven. We're going to spend heaven together. And, and, and she was listening to me. And she said, yeah, that would be great, won't it? Yeah. And, and, and then I prayed for her there. I said, Mom, can I pray for you? And I prayed for her, and I prayed that God would send the strongest angels into that room because he attacks weakness. And I said, don't let them come in here, God. You protect my mom. And I prayed through the room. And then right before we're getting ready to leave, I said, Mom, I got to go. I... Um, I said, but I'll, be, I'll see you again. She looks at me. I said, we will, Mom. We'll see each other again. I said, we're going to heaven together. <laughs> we both got Jesus. And she looked at me, and she said, can I pray for you? <laughs> and she grabbed my hand, and she prayed this prayer like she's prayed a thousand times before. Prayed for protection over me and blessing over me. And I left the room. And as I left the room, I said, Mom, we both got Jesus. That's good. I said, we get to spend eternity together. She said, I'll see you later. I said, I'll see you later, Mom. You see, it's in those kind of moments when you know you got Jesus. It's in those kind of moments when you know that Jesus lives in your mom and you're confident of it and he lives in you, that you can walk away from that room in tears but at the same time have joy because she has been chosen by God to be his, her da- his daughter. And Peter's looking at this group. He says, no matter what comes your way, always keep your eyes at knowing that God is good. 
And so is your salvation. And as you draw near to God, he's saying, God is building his church. Think about this. We are living stones. He said, we should never let it enter our minds that we are that we are ultimately responsible for our spiritual growth. Yes, live obediently, he said, but it's God that causes the growth in us. And God is the one in the middle of the construction process. And it says that he chooses living stones. And Jesus is building his church. He took dead stones. We were once dead, and now they're living stones, and he's building his church. And there's not one stone that's missing. He knows exactly who they'll be. And it's this living organism. And he says, keep in mind that it's built on Jesus, but he will never leave you nor forsake you. And he says, you and I represent a vital part of the outworking of God's plan. It's a beautiful picture. Living stones. Living stones being built. And as we're being built, we have the chance to tell the world that there is a God that lives in us. And your life matters, is what Peter is saying. And what you do matters. You are an important part in the story that God has for the world. And we are living stones stamped and bought by the blood of Jesus Christ. Now he goes on and he's looking at this group and he's saying, and another thing, another thing. In case that doesn't stir your heart, let this stir your heart. Look what he says in verse 9. He says, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and God's special what? What is it? Possession. That you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into this wonderful light. He said, once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy... But now you have received mercy. We are chosen. His grace and his unmerited favor put us in his family. You know, some of us are okay to admit that we will sin. And we will say that we stumble. Yet when it comes to this divine side of God choosing us, it bothers us. Because we value our freedom too much. We want to say we had something to earn our salvation. Let me tell you, there is nothing we could ever do or perform or ever, ever, ever conceive in our minds that could ever get us to God. It's only by the work of a perfect God, Jesus Christ. You see, there are no gaping holes in God's building project. Those whom God has chosen to be part of his temple will eventually be saved. God has the final say. Yes, we receive. Yes, we accept. But God does the choosing of that. Then he says this, that we are a royal priesthood. We have access to God through Jesus. Now, think about this. In the Old Testament, if you had a sin, you would go to a priest, and then you would confess your sin, and then the priest would take a lamb... And he would take it in and he would present it on an altar to God in place of your sins. This unblemished lamb would be there. So you had to go to a priest in order to get to God. And and Peter's saying, listen, you don't need to go to the priest. You're the priesthood of believers. You have access. Listen, you don't need to go to a Catholic priest to confess your sins. You can go right to Jesus, to God. 
In other words, think about this. You and I are portable temples and mobile priests. Like, that is so good. Why? Because there's only one mediator between God and man, and it's Jesus Christ. So we are mobile. Think about this. We are portable temples. God lives in us. Everywhere we go is the temple of God. Why? Because God lives in us. And so as you're seated, temple, 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 temple. And everywhere you go, guess what? God goes with you. And there were mobile priests too. We don't need to go knock on the Catholic's door and say, I need to confess my sin. Can I sit in the confessional? No. You are the priesthood of the believers. You can go right to God through Jesus Christ. That is good news. Because in the Old Testament, they had to go to priests. He says, no longer do you need the priest. Jesus, the priest, has come. Just go to him. That's a beautiful picture. And then he says this, you're a holy nation because of the righteousness of Jesus on you. You see, we can do wholesome things and live an attractive, winsome life because of Jesus. You know, we understand nations. But we don't really understand holy nation. Like, we understand sports and college sports. We say, well, we're Gator Nation, or we're Wolverine Nation, or we're Buckeye Nation, or we're Bulldog Nation, or we're Terrapin Nation. But he's saying that we're Jesus Nation. <laughs> Part of that. And then he wraps it up with my favorite piece. Like, every time I read this, I walk away and feel really special. He says this, then you are God's special possession. I want you to think about that for a second. The value of something ordinary increases when it's owned by someone extraordinary. We have worth and value that far outweighs anything the world has to offer. Why would we ever want to go back to our old ways? Peter is telling these believers that it's worth being persecuted. The struggles don't compare to what's in store for our homeland. We are owned by someone famous. Perfect. The God of creation. Let me try to demonstrate. I recently read through a, a Twitter post that Michael Jackson's white glove that he wore on his hand. The first time that, remember he moonwalked, remember that? Had that glove? That's it. That's all I got. I don't have any more. <laughs> that he wore was sold at an auction for $350 thousand dollars and I looked at that and thought that's dumb <laughs> but because he owned it it had value and because he he did the moonwalk in it it had value and there was someone out there that thought it was valuable because Michael Jackson was the owner of it he he gave more value because it was his in 1983 I, I was at the Washington Redskin Dallas Cowboy NFC Championship game. And some of you have heard this story, but you didn't maybe hear this piece of it. The Redskins won and ended up winning the Super Bowl that year. I ran down on the field after the game, excited, climbed up the goalposts, and I was one of the guys on one side, and we brought the goalposts down. I know you think that's stupid, but it was adrenaline. Just, it just happened. <laughs> but I also did something else. I was on RFK Field, the old RFK. And I remember thinking, this is RFK. I've only seen it from television. And I ran to the end zone, and I dug up some sod from the end zone. And I had grass. You think this is dumb, but you got to understand. I stuck it in my pocket. <laughs> but to me, it was very valuable. Why? Because 
Yes, it was RFK Stadium. And the Redskins played and scored on that end zone. And I remember going home and processing that. I forgot I had it in my pocket. <laughs> and I remember getting home and pulling this out. And, and I remember thinking, this is dumb. <laughs> but it's not dumb to know that you and I are God's special possession. And when you're owned by someone that's valuable, it takes our ordinary, it makes it extraordinary. And Peter's looking at this group and says, you don't need anything else. Nothing else. You don't need anything else. Because your owner, your God, is the King of kings and the Lord of lords and the creator of the world. And he chose you. Like, put that stuff in your pockets. So he wraps it up by saying this, because of this. He said, you're God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you. Why is he saying that? Because God made you who you are so you can tell the world who he is. Declare the praises. You see, if we don't stand out and live differently, then how can we ever give praise to our great God? He's saying that you've been given such a rich mercy that you were so undeserving of. He said you were once not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, now you have the mercy of God. Jesus took us from nothing to something and from rejected to accepted. And mercy is God not giving us what we do deserve. We deserve hell. We deserve damnation. We deserve condemnation. But because of his great love, he adopted and chosen us. And now we have eternal life. Like if that doesn't put a bounce in your step, then you're not alive this morning. Oh, Lord, help us. I pray, God, that we would take our eyes off of whatever's distracting us. And, and as we leave here today, we would recognize that we are portable temples and mobile priests loved by the God of the universe. And that, God, that you are good. And the only reason that we're special is because you live in us and you took something ordinary, made it extraordinary because you own us and live in us. And may we declare those praises to a world and may we take the message of Peter inspired by the Spirit and live it out. We are the chosen people of God. God's special possession, a holy nation, a royal priesthood. We are blessed. In Jesus' name, amen.